Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host, Lucas Servodio, and I hope you've got your party favors, dear listener, because you and I are headed to a music festival. Outside Lands is upon us. The world's biggest musical stars are headed to San Francisco next weekend between August 11th and August 13th. We are joined today by a different kind of star. It's Tanya Kohler, and she's the food curator of Outside Lands. She has the massive responsibility of assembling the vendors that keep the masses fed, working with them to figure out how they're going to serve their food in a festival setting, and ironing out all of the mind-boggling logistics to make it all come true. I personally have always been curious, if not jealous, of the people who get to create the roster of restaurants at a music festival. And before I spoke to Tanya, I thought it was probably like drafting a fantasy football team, you know, except... Instead of arbitrarily choosing burly athletes you studied about at the last minute, you get to carefully mix and match your favorite restaurants in the city. It turns out that it's much more than that. And I left this conversation with a whole new level of appreciation and admiration for the curators who make the food at music festivals happen. I also left hungry as hell because let me tell you, some of the food Tanya's got lined up for Outside Lands this year sounds absolutely bonkers. So even if you're not going to the festival next week, you're going to want to add some of these restaurants to your Bay Area bucket list. But first, since this is an LA podcast after all, I wanted to quickly share with you three incredible meals I've had recently. I've been eating like a damn prince lately, if I'm being honest, and it was insanely difficult to choose just three for today's pod, but alas, choices were made, and I've got stories of mariscos, roast beef, and Italian ice coming your way in just a minute. So without further ado, let's chow down. Dear listener, it's a beautiful day in Los Angeles. I cannot wait for you to hear my conversation with Tanya Kohler, the food curator of Outside Lands. I have frankly always fantasized about who gets to do that job and whether I would be any good at it. I just think there's something so magical about the eating at big music festivals. Like, the music is fine, yeah. It's honestly kind of a just a watered-down version of regular concerts, but the food, yes, there's an argument to be made that the food is also a watered down version of what you're getting at restaurants, but come on, you know that that's not true. What it actually allows you to do is it allows you to try a bunch of different restaurants all in one go. What's better than that? So I could not be more excited for the conversation with Tanya. I hope you're going to enjoy it, but of course, This is not a Bay Area podcast. This is the Los Angeles food podcast. So I thought it's only fair before we dive into the Bay Area food scene to tell you about three Los Angeles meals that have really wowed me recently. I'm talking John the Floor, can't wait to go again. So they're not fancy things. They're simple things, pretty accessible things. But they're things that I wanted to share with you nonetheless. So... Without further ado, here we go. So first, I'm taking you to the beautiful up-and-coming neighborhood that is Frogtown in East Los Angeles. Do you know why Frogtown is called Frogtown? I, I don't know about this for sure, but I think it has something to do with the fact that it's near the river and there's sort of like a urban legend that once upon a time, a bunch of frogs had made their way up from the river 
and, you know, started ribbiting, doing their thing, whatever it is that frogs do. And all of a sudden, the name Frogtown is upon us. But either way, it is one of Los Angeles's hottest neighborhoods right now, probably in terms of things opening up. There's Wax Paper, there's Salazar. Uh, one of the new restaurants that's opened up there in recent times is Loretto, which is brought to us by Chef Paco Moran, who also brought us LA's version of Cha Cha Cha, the Mexican, the Mexico City restaurant. Uh, he opened Cha Cha Cha, I want to say like a couple years ago over in the Arts District. And it's it's a very good restaurant. It's a restaurant that I think suffers from having such good vibes that people think it's all vibes, no substance. But Cha 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 has really good food. Don't do not underestimate the food at Cha Cha Cha. So it must be successful because the team has opened a second restaurant in Frogtown called Loretto. But I'm not here to talk to you about Loretto. I'm here to talk to you about their lunch concept, Za Za Za. So I'm not sure why they don't just open Loretto up for lunch and just serve a slightly different menu. They've decided to go a different route, which is create a completely different concept. It's called Za Za Za. And you enter through a different entrance. You're not going through the front door. You're going through like a, a side alley, which makes it feel really casual and almost like you're, you're breaking into this beautiful restaurant. And you order at a window. And it is a Morisco's counter. You basically have a, have a menu of a pretty limited but everything you need selection of Morisco's. Everything from ceviches to aguachiles to tostadas. There's also some hot tacos on there. And you put your order in, and uh, you go find a beautiful seat out in this patio, which honestly feels like you've been transported to, like, Cabo or something. I'm pretty sure the dirt, the ground is just dirt, but it feels like sand, you know? If, if you squint, you can kind of, kind of just feel like you're walking on sand. And you sit down, you have some beautiful mariscos, and I gotta say, the, the vibes are great, but the food is also amazing, so... My favorite thing here was something that I've had in Mexico, but that I had not had in Los Angeles, and it is called a costra. For those of you who don't know what this is, it's basically the best possible version of a quesadilla. What it is, is you get a flour tortilla, uh, or a corn tortilla, but in this case, a flour, and you take all the fillings that you would put in a taco... Here I think they do like shrimp and beans and other stuff like that. And you wrap it in cheese that is griddled on the plancha until it is basically just the part of the grilled cheese that's crispy at the edge, if you know what I mean. It's almost like a, a frico. It's like a frico burrito inside of a taco. It is perfection. It's crunchy cheesy, greasy, and it and it, it's the perfect vessel to consume seafood in, it turns out. As an Italian, I, I sort of balk when I hear seafood and cheese, but I gotta say, if you're gonna have seafood and cheese, this is the way to do it. The Costra at Zazaza. And of course, all of the, the crudo preparations there were phenomenal. We had a wonderful tostada that was uh, bejeweled with, with fish roe, which I really loved. Um, and, uh, we had a big cup of, of, uh, like a cocktail of ceviche, that kind of, th what is that called? It's not, it's not ceviche. It's just like the, uh, 
when you get basically like shrimp, scallop, cocktail, uh, but Mexican style with the saltine crackers, you know what I'm talking about. It's the perfect hangover food, honestly. I think a lot of people are like, seafood for hangover when my stomach's already unsettled? Are you kidding me? It's actually an underrated combo. So Zazaza, Frogtown, do not hesitate. Uh, don't don't waste your time going anywhere else. Go there. Next time you need a lunch, a brunch, you don't need a reservation. Just show up. Tell them the LA Food Podcast sent you. They'll look at you like, what the fuck is that? But tell them anyway. Anyways, second place I wanted to tell you about, it's a place at the Row in downtown Los Angeles. So we've all heard of Chris Bianco. We've all heard of Pizzeria Bianco. But recently, he's opened up a sandwich and pizza by the slice spot called Pane Bianco, which means white bread. And I got to say, this place is absolutely phenomenal. Here's what I love about Pane Bianco. They have a very limited selection of sandwiches. They have like three sandwiches. But each sandwich is prepared and executed with so much thought and so much care and so much labor, you could create a a pop-up concept based on each sandwich in and of itself. So get this. Every single sandwich comes with its own different type of bread that is baked in-house and that is used only for that sandwich. Now, if that's not a, a frankly troubling OCD level uh, de- level of dedication. I don't know what is. That is that's almost troubling. You know what I mean? So my favorite sandwich there was the roast beef sandwich, which was super simple. It came on a on an amazing baguette. It was freshly roasted beef that was still a little bit rare in the middle. So it was the juices were dripping down your chin. It came with a little bit of fermented Fresno butter for, for some funkiness. And uh, it just had some pickled banana peppers for brightness. It was simple, but absolutely just mouthwateringly uh, delicious. The two other sandwiches, one was a mortadella sandwich, which Mortadella seems to be all the rage these days. You know, Evan Funky's doing it. You can get uh, it at that new sandwich place, uh, Tremani in Ocean Park, that's doing like uh, Roman-style pizza Bianca sandwiches. But at Pane Bianco, their sandwich was fine. The actual fillings were fine. Like the mortadella, they add some apricot mustarda, which I wasn't crazy about if I'm being honest. But the bread it's served on is a pizza Bianca. And listener, believe me when I tell you, this is the best, most authentic pizza Bianca I've had outside of Rome. And it's something that I've been hankering for. I haven't even been, I haven't never understood why it's so difficult to make pizza Bianca, but nobody here does it well. I've had like, you know, I've I've had people, I've seen people try. Uh, I think, you know, Nancy Silverton has tried, uh, and, and their versions are good, but it's just, it doesn't hit the same way that uh, that the ones in Rome do. Even Tremani, the place in Ocean Park, it's fine, but their bread is more like a Florentine schiacciata. It's not really like a Roman pizza bianca. But Pane Bianco, Chris Bianco, nails the pizza bianca, so this sandwich is worth ordering alone for the pizza bianca. 
their final sandwich. It's a vegetarian option. It's on a Puglian bread called pucha, which is it's kind of like the Italian version of pita bread. It's it's I, I'm pretty sure it's it's basically just pizza dough that's baked in the uh, baked in the oven and then sliced in half. So what could really go wrong? And this one's filled with like roasted peppers and burrata. It's 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 simple but but very very good. But Pane Bianco, you gotta get there. The sandwiches are absolutely phenomenal. Their pizza by the slice is out of this world. It's probably one of the best New York slices in Los Angeles, if I'm being honest. So do not hesitate. Go there and free parking at the row. There's free parking. Why, why would you not go? There's free parking. And if you go on a Sunday, you can stop by Smorgasburg as well. So it seems like a win, 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 win. Now, the last place I want to tell you about before we move on to our conversation with Tanya, it's dessert. I'm serving you up a little bit of dessert, dear listener. So if you remember a few weeks ago, we had uh, we had Courtney Storer on the podcast. She was uh, She is the culinary producer of The Bear on FX. And uh, she mentioned on the podcast that she was starting her own project called Coco's to Go-Go. So what do I do? I go on Instagram. I follow Coco's to Go-Go. I'm like, you know, next time this pops up, I'm going. I'm going for show-show. I'm going to Coco's to Go-Go for show-show. Now, I'm on Instagram. I see that they're popping up at this uh, at this uh, wine bar in Silver Lake. I forget what it's called. It's called like the Ruby Fruit or something like that. It's right next to, uh, it's where it's where that John and Vinny's place used to be, Trois Familia. Uh, really good brunch spot that for some reason didn't make it, but uh, that's where it's located. And I saw that they were popping up there, Coco's to Go-Go, and they were doing Italian ice. Now, I'm not really a sorbet guy. I think I can probably count on one hand the times I've ordered sorbet in my life. Um, I always go for the cream, always go for the ice cream, the gelato. That's just my style. That's just what I do. But it's been hot. As you know, it has been sweltering in Los Angeles. So one of these sweltering weekends, my wife and I, we showed up to this wine bar and ordered some Italian ice from Courtney Store herself. And I got to say, it blew my damn mind. I didn't know that ice and, and fruit could taste so good. So I know what you're wondering. What the hell is the difference between Italian ice and like shaved ice? Well, Italian ice is made in a process that's similar to ice cream meaning that the ingredients are mixed together and then frozen. Meanwhile, when you make shaved ice, the ice is frozen, it's put in a cube or a block, it's then shaved into very fine pieces and they add like a syrup or a topping on top. I don't really mess with that. That's where I think it gets really artificial. But the way that Coco Sagogo is making it, the Italian ice method, I think that is a method that is able to extract the fruit flavor from the fruit in a way that somehow tastes more like the fruit than the fruit does itself. Are you following me? Do I sound like I'm high? I think I sound like I'm high. But I'm telling you, it is a way to taste fruit that is unique, refreshing, and frankly delicious. So we had three types. One was a lemon. One was a like a melon, like a, like a cantaloupe type thing. And uh, the third was like a boozy passion fruit. I, I don't... 
Picking my favorite one is like a Sophie's choice. There's things I loved about each of them. The lemon was had that beautiful tartness that kind of like uh, jams up your jaw. You know what I'm talking about? It gives you that like tingly feeling in your jaw, like your jaw just met someone special. Do you know what I mean? The melon one I have a deep appreciation for because that is such like a a a, a famous Italian flavor that we put in everything, but that you don't really see here in America that much. So I really liked that Coco's was doing that. And the boozy one, I mean, come on, what's not to love? You get a little bit of booze. It's also got uh, uh, passion fruit. And for some reason, the texture on that one was even creamier than the other two. I think it may have been something to do with the sugar content of the fruit or the booze. I'm not sure. But the texture was almost like you could not believe there was not cream in there because it was not eating like ice. But I got to say, Italian ice, it's my new favorite thing. It's my new craze. Uh, I think I'm going to be having Italian ice a lot this summer. Hell, maybe this winter. You never know. So please go give Cocos to Gogo a follow on Instagram. And next time they pop up, do whatever you have to do. Drop all your plans. Tell your grandma you're not coming over, you know, uh, do what you got to do and get there, okay? Wow, Los Angeles has a lot of good food, guys. I could, I could do this all day. I could tell you about places to eat. Um, but then again, it, it kind of also feels like it's just me talking into the void because I don't, I, I rarely do solo podcasts. Um, but you don't have to worry because uh, the solo part of this podcast is almost over. In fact, I'm going to end it right now. We are going to move on right now to our conversation with Tanya Kohler. So don't go anywhere because we'll be right back. Dear listeners, we are leaving Los Angeles today to take a quick trip up to the Bay Area. I am delighted to welcome to the podcast today the food curator of Taste of the Bay Area at Outside Lands, Tanya Kolar. Tanya, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Oh my God. Thank you for joining. I can only imagine you're gearing up for uh, some pretty busy weekends. Yes. Yes. This weekend is, and this full week is all preparations. Um, we're going to be out in Golden Gate Park getting everything ready. And then next week we welcome our restaurant partners. They're arriving on Wednesday and Thursday to do all of their load in. And then Friday we we hit go. That's insane. So, so right now, are you like trying to get as much sleep as possible and like eating health, like making sure that you're like prepared for when it's go time? Yes, definitely getting a lot of sleep. And I'm actually working on expanding my stomach. I think it's important to uh, <laughs> get in my eating exercise before outside land so I can really maximize my, my eating when I get to the event. Smart, very smart. Well, we'll get <laughs> we'll get to questions about best eating strategy at Outside Lands in a minute. But first, I just want to know: so, what what are your San Francisco stomping grounds? Um, so, I'm originally from Connecticut, and I moved to San Francisco in 2009. Um, I was living in the Lower Haight at that time, and I loved running around the Haight in the Mission. Um, I loved going to RNL Pizza. That was my favorite late night pizza mm. joint. Rest in peace. It no longer exists in the mission. Hmm. Um, Toronado is this amazing beer bar uh, down in Lower Haight. was like a one to two minute walk from where I lived. And they were right next to Rosa Monday, um, which is one of our outside, longtime outside lands vendors. They've been with us for, I think, 12 years. So I would get a sausage from next door, bring it over and have a beer. That was one of my favorite rituals. Oh, hell <laughs> um, yeah. And then Flower and Water opened in 2009, basically right after I moved to San Francisco. So that was one of my immediate 
passions. I fell in love with their food. So um, you would definitely find me there at least once a month. I love flour and water. For our LA listeners who aren't familiar, it's definitely one of the best, if not the best, pizza and pasta place in in, uh, San Francisco. And I remember when I went to go visit San Francisco when I was in college, like uh, looking for places to live after college, I went to Flower and Water just to make sure I would not be like out in the cold when it came to pizza options. And I was like, yeah, they, they got, they got a good pizza here. I love that place. Oh, absolutely. That was, yeah, definitely one of my favorite spots and kind of my introduction to like more upscale Italian food. Um, growing up in Connecticut, I, you know, Olive Garden was Italian food. So when I came, when I came to San Francisco, it would just opened my eyes up to what real pasta is, you know, and real pizza is. It was pretty incredible. Were you always into food? Did you grow up being into food? Um, so I used to actually get in trouble a lot as a kid because I got out of school before my mom came home from work. So she would come <laughs> home to find me in her recipe box, making things that I had no business making, um, that we didn't even have ingredients for. And I was trying to make it work. So like what, what were you trying to make? Everything from like baked goods, which I had no idea how to be properly measuring, you know, baking powder and baking soda and things like that, Um, but all the way up to like Italian dishes. My mom loved, she's from Russia, but she loved to cook Italian food for some reason. So um, that was definitely one of my, um, uh, my my bigger, um, I guess I, I would try to make as much Italian food as possible, just looking at her recipes. You know, as I mentioned, coming from Connecticut to San Francisco, I was kind of all of a sudden presented with all of these amazing options for all of these different types of cultural cuisines. And, you know, I had never tried Ethiopian food food before. Um, I had never tried Taiwanese food before, you know, so it was basically my introduction to all these different flavors. Um, and I was working at a restaurant in the mission called Andalou. And so I would basically take all of my tips from that job and go out and try as many restaurants as I possibly could. That's what I spent all my money on when I first moved to San Francisco. That's so cool. What kind of restaurant was Andalou? Um, so it was a small, it was like a tapas restaurant, mm. so Spanish tapas. Yeah. And I loved eating their food and I loved it. was located on 16th and Guerrero in the mission. So if you're familiar with the mission, like pretty much in the heart of the mission. So, you know, after work, basically take my tips and go find it, go, yeah. go to somewhere nearby and spend it all. World's your oyster there. Uh, exactly. Was that your first job working in the food world or, or had you done it before? I was working, you know, when I first graduated college um, in Massachusetts, I moved back to Connecticut and I was kind of trying to figure out what to do with myself. And so um, like many folks who graduate college and have no idea what to do, I started working at a Chili's. <laughs> <laughs> and so that that's actually um, how I was able to move out to San Francisco. So they transferred me. I, I came to San Francisco on vacation and fell in love with it and moved two weeks later. I, it was just, that was it. Wow. So, um, yeah. So I had been working in hospitality um, for, for many, many years prior to coming to San Francisco. I feel like in the food world, at least as far as I'm concerned, getting a job as the curator of one of the biggest music festivals in the world is pretty close to like being the dream job. How did you go from working at Andalou to being where you are today? 
Uh, it's kind of a funny story. I was skateboarding to Andalou one day and I broke my foot. <laughs> um, and so I wasn't able to work there for a couple of months. And when I came back to work, um, he didn't, the owner didn't really have like a serving or bartending position available for me. So he hired me to run his booth at Outside Lands. And no yeah, so, um, and I remember from the, the moment I got there, I was like, this is so cool. How do they put this whole thing together? And I just became immediately fascinated by the whole concept of this insane food program. Um, and because it was my first year doing this, I really got to know the food curator at that time, a guy named Ari Feingold. And I was fascinated by his job as the food curator of Outside Lands. And I, I basically begged him to hire me. So um, he, he did. He hired me. And I started working with him behind the scenes at Outside Lands, kind of helping him with all of the nuts and bolts of getting everybody set up for success at the event. Um, and I think that he could immediately see that one of my favorite parts of the job was helping him with the curation because I was, I mean, eating out so many times per week. I was like, you have to check out this place. This would be perfect. I could totally see this being turned into a festival food. So he, he knew, I think, right off the bat that I was going to succeed him when he was uh, leaving that position, which he did in 2016. So he was pretty much like grooming you as the, as the successor. Yeah, pretty much. He could tell right off the bat that this was going to be the right thing for me. I was, I was obsessed. I was so happy and delighted to be doing what I was doing, working with him. And then when I got the opportunity to take that position, it was like, I, I remember when I got the call, I was, I was absolutely overjoyed. Like you couldn't imagine how excited and happy I was because it was already a dream job. And then no. it just went to the next level, you know? I no, I can only imagine. I, what did you love about it? What did you fall in love with about it? I think one of my favorite things about the job is working with all of the restaurant owners and the chefs. Um, it's really cool to brainstorm with them and work through their menus and talk through like how they're actually going to succeed with, with serving this volume of people. Mm -hmm. And it's something that you kind of learn about through experience. And because I've been doing it for so many years, I've gotten more and more confident and can say to them, Hey, I know that you'd like to do this item. What if we did it like this? What if we presented it like this? It would be less messy. Maybe we take your Indian food and we do it in a burrito, you know, like working with them to basically figure out how they're going to be successful at the event. That's definitely hands down my favorite part aside from eating all the food. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any like awesome, like little examples of times when that's really been a success? I mean, well, let's see. This year, I've been working with Kayo. They're a Nikkei restaurant in San Francisco. They've actually got a couple of locations. Um, so they do Peruvian Japanese food. And I worked with them pretty closely to nail down exactly what their food, what they'd like to serve. So they wanted to do Peruvian skewers. And so I was kind of working through that with them. And I think taking the skewers and turning them into a rice bowl. So basically it's still the Peruvian skewers, but it's served with like seasoned rice. It just mm -hmm. makes it more of a meal. And that was something they hadn't really thought about. So I think that that's, that's one example. Oh, and I'll, here's another one, uh, Lulu from Berkeley. So um, they do amazing Arab food. And so they're, there are so many different ways they could have gone with their menu items for outside lands. They have so much incredible, fresh, delicious food that they make. And we, we landed on falafel nachos with sumac chicken. And it was one of those things where we're like, are we going to do a wrap? No, that's too boring. And then she was like, what about falafel nachos? And I immediately lit up like, first off, I've never had falafel nachos. And 
I don't, I think most people haven't. And also sumac is such a great flavor. Oh, yeah. I think that would complement. So I, I have not tried these yet. We've only workshopped them. So I'm super excited to try the falafel nachos with sumac chicken. Are they like, are the nachos themselves the falafel or? Basically nachos with falafel, like crumbled falafel and the sumac chicken and all the wow. types of toppings. Wow. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited. So that's, that's a perfect example of kind of like, you know, originally she was thinking something just like a wrap, you know, something kind of basic. And then when we talked about it a little further and got to that idea, that's one of the most exciting parts of what I do is like when we come up with something together, that's like really exciting. It sounds really incredible. Um, no. That just makes me absolutely delighted. That's awesome. Have Has there ever been an example of one of these sort of like collaborative created dishes that then ended up on the restaurant's menu after Outside Lands? Ooh, that's a good question. I actually am not sure. Now I'm going to look into that after this. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm sure that it's, you know, now that I think of it, maybe not necessarily the items that they've decided to serve at the festival. That's definitely a possibility. But I, what I've heard from the chefs is that they get really inspired by what other folks are doing at mm. Outside Lands. So they come and they get to go, you know, once they've got the booth up and running, they can kind of break away and go check out what other restaurants are doing. And as a restaurateur and a chef, you know, what other chance do you, do you get to go and look at what 95 of your fellow restaurateurs from the local area are doing and like talk to them and network with them. Um, so I, I think that that's a huge benefit for, for the chefs and restaurateurs that join us. They really get to make those connections and kind of just explore what everyone else, you know, in their industry is doing. That's a really cool aspect that I hadn't considered because yeah, it totally makes sense. As a chef working in one restaurant, I imagine it can get pretty insular. Like your restaurant is your universe, right? And to right. you probably hear of all these amazing restaurants around town, but you're somewhat limited in the amount that you can go out and explore and talk to other people because your restaurant is so all-consuming. So having this right. opportunity, I mean, I can only imagine some of the conversations that go down. Yeah. And they, you know, what's really cool too about that community is the restaurants that have done it for many years, they'll take the new restaurants that are joining for the first time under their wing. And it's really like touching for me to see that camaraderie and, you know, that can, that sense of community that's built between them. And they'll, you know, make recommendations. Oh, you know, don't get that much propane, get this much propane. I've learned from experience. This is how much propane you should get, you know, things like that, that you really only learn from experience. So um, it is really beautiful to see that happen. My like primary music festival that I've been to in my life is Coachella being, you know, in right. Southern California. And I remember the first time I went, it was 2013 or so. And the amount that the food scene has evolved since 2013 at music festivals, it's evolved by leaps and bounds. Like I remember back then uh, in 2013, it was probably like, there was like the generic taco stand, the generic hot dog stand, the generic pizza stand. And then they had like a few trucks. Like I remember it was, yeah. I really like angled to go get Kogi's uh, Korean. Kogi, yeah, uh, I was going to say Kogi group. was there at that time. <laughs> yeah, that was, but that was like the game in town. That was like, if you're a foodie, oh, yeah. you went to Kogi, you know, it wasn't really like a foodie experience, but now, you know, 
they are curating it in a way where they are bringing in restaurants from Los Angeles and surrounding areas. And you you can go and like not listen to any music and have an incredible experience, right? Um, I'm interested to hear how has Outside Lands evolved over the year? And also like, I feel like every music festival has its own specific like vibe, if you know what I mean. What's the sort of like mm-hmm. food vibe you strive to create at Outside Lands? I think as far as food vibes, one of my favorite things when I moved to San Francisco was noticing how like high quality yet unpretentious all of the, like the dining scene was. So you could go to a Michelin starred meal and you could just be wearing, you know, a t-shirt and jeans and no one would think twice about it. So I think that that's kind of how I like to think of the outside lands food scene as well. Like for example, we've got Sorrel, they've got one Michelin star. Um, and I just dined there recently and it was out of control. It was so good. But and they're they do fried gonna chicken. be there? Yeah, they're gonna be there and they do fried chicken sandwiches and it's the best fried chicken sandwich you've ever had in your life. So wow. like that's kind of I think what we're about is like taking things that are really high quality, but serving them up in a really unpretentious way, you know, like having this really beautiful, amazing food. But like with Lulu, it's served up as nachos, mm-hmm. you know. So I think that that's kind of what what we go for. Um you know, and then terms of in terms of how the outside lands, you know, food program has evolved over the years. I think the main thing that's changed is the amount of diversity that we have. So, you know, Stanford in San Francisco in the Bay Area, there's so much different ethnic cuisine. Like I mentioned to you earlier, when I came here and saw Ethiopian food, I was like, "What is that? I need to mm-hmm. try that." And the flavors I had never had anything like it before. So, I think that the main thing that's changed is we're trying to really expand and get all different types of cuisine um, at Outside Land. So people really have an opportunity to try things that are a little maybe outside of their comfort zone. Um, If they want to expand their palate, it's a really great place for you to go with your friends and be like, let's go get three or four things that we've never heard of before. We don't really know what that type of cuisine is. And let's split them all up and try them and, you know, see what this stuff is all about. So I think that that's that's one way that we've really consciously tried to change the food program is by by adding more and more and more diversity. Um, And then we've also got a couple of really cool new programs this year um, that I'm super excited about. So for the first time ever, we're doing cocktail and food pairings from the same booths. Uh, We've got Trick Dog, which is like an incredible cocktail bar in San Francisco, and they've got really great incredible i would say bar food but it's not even bar food it's it's really high level mm-hmm. food um and the contiki they're doing cocktails and food pairings from the same booth typically you have to get your cocktail from one booth and your food from another but we're combining it into one and then we're also in vip doing cheese and wine pairings from the same booth so you can go and get a cheese plate from bohemian creamery they're out of occidental and then you can get like a reserve wine pairing right from the same booth which i think is a really exciting evolution of what we're doing that's huge. It's such a pain in the ass to have to like be like, okay, you go get the drinks, I'll go get the food, and uh, and then we'll meet up in the middle. And then maybe you do meet or maybe you don't. And right, and depending right. on how the lines are, maybe half the drinks are already drunk or half the food is already eaten. So that's awesome that you can do two and one at those booths. That's that's something that I haven't seen before. I'm really excited for that. Yeah, we're definitely excited for that. It's a time saver, and also it allows the restaurant to kind of curate your entire experience. You know, like. If you're getting the cocktail from them and the food from them, you're really having the experience of going to their restaurant without actually going there, which I think is so cool. So that these are like, you know, examples of new things that are going to be at Outside Lands this year. 
But when it comes to building that like holistic picture of all of the different restaurants and all the different vendors that, that you want to curate to be there, how do you go about building that roster? Like, is it like, is it like building like, you know, a football team roster where you're like, I need this restaurant to do this and this restaurant to, to fill, scratch that itch and then placing them and making sure that all the puzzle pieces, fit. it sounds so hard. It's definitely a puzzle. Um, and the puzzle starts every year with inviting back our restaurants from the previous year. So for many of them, this is a huge thing for them financially to do this year. We've had, we have a couple of restaurants that have been with us for 15 years. So wow. they come back and do it every single year. And we encourage that. You know, I think some festivals might think, well, we want to have, you know, really switch it up and have all new food every year. But for us, it's really about supporting the local, you know, restaurant community. And if coming back every year and doing this is a good thing for them, we want them to give them the opportunity to continue doing that. So we have a pretty high return rate, um, somewhere around, you know, in the 80s, 80%. So basically with 96, 97 restaurants, I have slots for about, I think this year I got like 17 new ones. So something around there, that's like the number I have to play with. And that's where the puzzle begins because then I start looking at where the restaurants are that decided not to join us. What's missing in that row? You know, do we have, okay, the, the obvious ones are we need to have like pizza, burgers and fried chicken in pretty much every area. Yeah. And then, and then I can start looking at like, what have we not done before? We've got a Colombian restaurant, Parche, that's going to be a part of the event this year. They, I've never had Colombian food at the event. So we're super excited to have them. Um, and it's just really looking at all those different areas and figuring out what would be the best fit. And then also looking at, I mean, throughout the entire year, I keep track of all the restaurants that I've tried that I think would be a good fit or restaurants that I've read about that I think would be a good fit. And then it's kind of going through that list and seeing like who would be the perfect puzzle piece to fit into this area where I have a spot open. Um, it's very, very fun to be honest with you. It's really creative and, um, yeah, it's 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 really a blast. Um, we get a lot of applications. We get like 200 plus applications each year. So in addition to my list of like my my wish list of who I basically cold call, we also have this huge list of applicants. And I'll often see applicants and I'm like, oh, that would be such a perfect fit. So it's really a combination of kind of those two processes. It sounds tough. It's like it's like there are so many people that want to do it. It's almost like getting accepted to do it is a, is a big deal for these restaurants, huh? Yes, I would say so. And you would be surprised. Sometimes I reach out to restaurants that I'm kind of like, I don't think that they would do it. I don't think that they, I think that maybe they're just at this level where it's not something they would be interested in. And you would be surprised at the responses that I get um, of restaurants that are super interested and you know they that's why i kind of don't hold back when i reach out now i'll just reach out to whoever i think is going to be a good fit and it's totally up to them if they agree with me or not but um yeah i think it is for many of them especially the applicants they get very excited if they're accepted and it's like a really something some of them have applied year after year after year and then they finally get accepted and i could tell it's really special to them it's like the harvard of music festival food program <laughs> Uh, like I, I'd like be. to see the, the reaction videos of them getting the acceptance letter. I'd love to see that go trending on TikTok. Um, yeah, you that, both. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's cool. I mean, like I feel like I haven't seen Michelin star restaurants at Coachella before, so that's definitely something that sounds unique to Outside Lands. What else 
you you talked about the the cocktails and getting the cocktails and the food at the same booth. What else makes this year in particular unique to previous years? Um, one of the new things that we're doing this year is we work with this nonprofit called La Cocina, and they basically work with um, immigrants, people of color, per, uh, primarily women um, who want to launch um, either restaurants or pop-ups or catering companies, any kind of a food business. So they're kind of an incubator for those businesses, and they have free classes where they teach them how to do you know, all of these, all of the part pieces aside from the cooking, typically they come to the program and have great food and have no idea how to turn it into a business. So they do in incredible work. We've been working with them basically the entire time Outside Lands has existed. So <clears throat> we're doing something special with them this year where three of their entrepreneurs are going to come in and operate in one booth and do three different types of totally different tacos. So you can get a taco plate that's got an oyster mushroom taco and it's got a shrimp ceviche taco and it's got a Cubano taco. It's like three totally different interpretations by these entrepreneurs of what a taco is to them. And you can get it all on one plate. And then they've got a couple of different sides as well that each of each one is creating. That's mm. going to be really fun for people who like to try a lot of food at outside lands because you can go to just one spot, one stop shop for three different, totally, yeah. type, totally different types of tacos. And it's sort of like a cool mission-based organization too. Yeah, they're amazing. They're amazing. We work with them every year. To, and you know, last year we did a booth where they had a different entrepreneur each day. So we're really trying to work with them. And for, for their entrepreneurs, it's great experience. If they want to do you know music festivals and events and street, street food festivals and stuff, it's great for them to have the experience of coming to outside lands and really learning how things work. So out of all of this stuff or all of the vendors – returning, new, all of it. What are you, Tanya, most excited for this year? I always hesitate to answer this because I don't want to play favorites. Um, I'm definitely going to be going out there and trying as much as possible. And I really, truly do think that all the food that's out there is amazing. Um, some of the new, you know, I'm always excited to try our new partners um, since they've never been out there before. I want to go talk to them at their booth, try what they're doing. Get, sometimes I'll give them tips on like how they might be able to improve. Um, so typically I'll go out there on Friday to try their food just so we, if there's anything that needs tweaking, we can work on it for, for Saturday, Sunday. Um, Shuggy's Trash Pie. I'm really excited to try their pizza. What's um, that? I've never heard of it. <laughs> They use um, ingredients that would typically be be thrown away. That's why they're called trash pie. So they basically use, I can't remember exactly what it is. I believe it's a, a byproduct of beer production that they use for their the yeast in their dough. Um, and then they, they do this, they use, you know, um, imperfect vegetables and things like that. So that's kind of what they're all about is sustainability. Um, oh, cool. But they make really... They make really banging food too. So, I mean, <laughs> um, that's kind of cool, really great concept. I mean, all that stuff, yeah. it doesn't need to be thrown away. So, what an amazing sustainable concept. I, I'd be really interested to try their pizza too. Yeah, they're, they're incredible. Their restaurant is really fun and trendy and funky too. It's all like highlighter yellow and highlighter green and very in your face and psychedelic. And they're just really fun people. So, I'm super excited to go out there and try the, the pies that they're producing at the event. Um, we worked really hard on the process for that, which producing the volume of pizzas that you sell at an event this large is a huge challenge. So you have to really fine tune your process. So working with them on what that looks like, how many ovens they need, warmers, you know, flow of service, all of that has been um, 
you know, it's, it's been something we've worked on for months. So I'm excited to see how that is, you know, panning out for them. Um, how much of you, how much of that is the job? You know what I mean? Like the logistics of it, like having to figure out how do we get these people the right amount of equipment and make sure we're able to feed people in a timely manner. That's a big part of it. So the title of curator is only a very small portion of what I do. So <laughs> I work very closely with all 95 of our restaurant partners. Typically after the first year, they don't need to speak with me that much, but I have multiple planning calls with all of the new restaurant partners because it's not an easy undertaking. If you're a restaurant and you've never done an event before, going into an event with you know 80,000 people, 80, people per day, it, it's huge. You have to... You know, there's also the health and fire guidelines that you need to pay attention to. You have to understand how to pass your inspections and be safe. Um, you know, food safety in a restaurant is different than food safety at a festival. You have to be really careful with your temperatures and all of that. Um, I would say that that is probably the biggest part of my job is that not the curation, but the actual like planning process with all of the restaurant partners to make sure that they're successful. That's crazy. What are some things you wouldn't think about that apply to a festival setting that don't necessarily apply to a restaurant setting? The, the number one thing is hot holding, because if you speak to any restaurateur, the term hot holding, you know, implies that we're at like a Chili's or, you know, we're yeah. at a, like a low quality business that is keeping food hot under this warmer and it comes out and it's yucky and it's dried out. So that's, when you talk about hot holding to a restaurateur that has really high standards, that's what, that's where their brain goes. But at a music festival, because of the ebbs and flows of the crowd, where the crowd, you know, all of a sudden, one of the headliners comes on and people just will leave your line. They'll be like, see ya, I'll get a burger later. And all of a sudden you've got all these, you were like cranking, making all these burgers. You have to have a way to keep them warm so that when people come back, not only is the food safe and it's at a safe temperature, but it's also you know, the right temperature, what it's supposed to be. So I would say that's the number one thing that I talked to. I really have to talk some of the restaurateurs into using hot holding, which is like chafing dishes, heat lamps, things like that. So they, and then once they get there and they see what the flow is like, they're like, oh, okay. Now I yeah. see what you're talking about. We definitely need this. <laughs> and then they can probably adjust their menus. Like they're, they're not going to be serving things that are like need to be consumed right on the spot, but like, can survive the hot holding. And I think that most things can survive a little bit of hot holding. You know, we're not keeping things under a heat lamp for 20, 30 minutes. It's probably under their max five minutes, but with how breezy and blustery it is in Golden Gate Park, read cold, it's really cold there, <laughs> especially in August, which is crazy to people from Southern California, probably. Um, you know, you really have that five minutes matters. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're, we're like experiencing a historic heat wave down here. So the, the thought of like going to outside lands in a couple of weeks and being cold seems impossible, but it's going to happen. Right. And this is why our hoodie and blanket sales are through the roof because every year people come from out of town, Southern California in particular, I think, and they're in shorts and a t-shirt and they immediately regret it as soon as like the, the fog rolls in. <laughs> so that makes, you know, all of our, the really comforting dishes at Outside Lands, like the soups and things like that. I don't think that soup would do well at a lot of festivals, but it does well at Outside Lands. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. What's the best food to stay warm with at Outside Lands? Because, yeah, you don't see too many soups or ramens or things like that hanging around uh, Coachella. 
Yeah, I, you know, I would love to have ramen back. We had ramen for a couple of years um, and it's a really hard thing to execute at a festival. Um, you have to get your system down and it, it is not easy. Mm -hmm. So we don't have any ramen this year, but we do have um, Bodega SF. So they were at Eater's Restaurant of the Year 2022. Um, they are doing a, a short rib, Vietnamese short rib soup called Boko. And that's going to be like super hearty, really filling, really just warm and inviting. Um, so that's definitely on my list. And then also um, Abaca, which is a Filipino restaurant um, in San Francisco. They are serving a Filipino dumpling molo soup with like chicken and shrimp dumplings, mm. which sounds incredible. I haven't tried that one yet. So um, definitely, you know, once the evening hits and the fog rolls in, I'm going to be moseying over there to try their mullo soup for sure. Okay. I'm going to give you some, some more like situational questions now. Okay. okay. I feel like this, this is right, becoming like a Deloitte interview to work at like, you know, one of the big four. <laughs> Let's say you are, yeah, someone from Southern California who is going up to the Bay area for this festival, not too familiar with the, uh, the, the Bay area culinary scene. How would you recommend they strategically tackle the day? So that they're well nourished, but and they've tried a bunch of stuff, but they aren't too stuffed to break it down at the 1975. Okay, any day at Outside Lands should start with brunch somewhere in the Richmond or the Sunset. So that gets you out into the Richmond or the Sunset, which are like on either side of Golden Gate Park, if you're not familiar with it, like to the north and the south. Find a spot, make a reservation because they're going to be busy go with your friends and do like a bottomless brunch or just, you know, if you're not imbibing, just have like a big solid brunch to get you, get you through the gates. Any so of your favorite it, spots? Oh, I don't know if cassava is open anymore. They were one of our restaurants at outside lands a couple of years back and they had a great brunch, but I think that they've moved to North beach. I don't think that they're open in that area anymore. Um, one of our restaurants that's currently at Outside Lands, Uma, they're a Korean restaurant. They have incredible, incredible food. Search for places in the Richmond and the Sunset, folks. That's, that's the key here. What's great about doing that is you get yourself out into the Richmond and the Sunset before the crowds get there. So your Ubers will be cheaper and you'll be able to walk to the park. That's key. Um, so getting Outside Lands, you've got, you know, you've got enough to get you through waiting in the line probably for a little bit to get in, depending on what time you, you arrive. And then... If you're there in the early afternoon, go for the places that will probably have the longest lines later. Um, a couple of those are El Garage. They do the quesadilla tacos and they always have a massive line. They're very popular. So I would say go there for lunch, not dinner, because by dinner it's going to be a long wait. Um, Smish Smash for their smash burgers, um, Horn Barbecue. They're going to be, do be doing chopped cheeses. Uh, Senior Seasig, they do Filipino burritos. They all have crazy lines for dinner. So I recommend going for, for lunch. That's a, a hot tip for you. I've heard such good things about Horn Barbecue. Uh, uh, we actually had a guest who is a Bay Area resident a few weeks ago, and he was telling us about his favorite spots up there, and Horn Barbecue came up. So you can get that at the festival, huh? Yes, they're a newcomer this year. We're super excited to have them. They're doing um, burnt ends sandwiches and chopped cheeses. So um, definitely. And, and when you go to their restaurant, if you get there too late, they run out. So, you know, this is a good opportunity for you to have them, you know, exactly where they are. You can beeline there as soon as you get to the festival and make sure that you get, you know, get your food without too long of a wait. 
Okay, so what are we having for dessert? We've we've had some, you know, horn barbecue and senor seasig after having brunch. Mm-hmm. So we're already feel we're already feeling pretty full, but we have room for a little bit of dessert. What are we having? Oh, I'm definitely going to dream for the they have a, a hollow hollow mochi waffle and they do like croffles, croissant waffles, and they're loaded with like strawberries and cream and all different types of delicious things. So that's high on my list for desserts. Um, out the dough does cookie dough bites and cookie dough sundaes. Um, they're so delicious. The bites you can kind of carry around and like eat as you go, share them with friends. Those are really good for sharing. Uh, and then Johnny Donuts, you probably are going to need some coffee at some point in the day <laughs> to make it through. <laughs> so Johnny Donuts, getting a donut and a coffee is always a great way to have your dessert and your getting energized kind of all in one stop. Um, and then we've also got Sweet July up. And if you have VIP passes, you can go to Sweet July, which is Aisha Curry's uh, coffee company up in VIP for your daily oh, energization. Cool. Very cool. And then, so you, you've eaten all this all day. You've done a, you, you know, you, you've had a great day of eating at Outside Lands. You've danced your face off. Late night, you've, you're, you're hankering for something as you're leaving the grounds. What, do you, what are your favorite late night spots in the city? Let's see. I mean, Beretta, if you can get it over to the mission, Beretta is always open late. And that's one of my old school haunts. I think they opened in 2008, which was the year before I moved to San Francisco. And that's a great spot to go and grab a late night bite. They actually have a spot now that I'm thinking about it um, in Nopa, north of the Panhandle, that they just opened relatively recently. So I'm not sure if that one has the same late night hours. And then, of course, Nopa is right across the street. If you're familiar with Nopa, that's yeah, longtime San Francisco favorite. Um, they're always open late and cater to that industry crowd that loves to go out, um, you know, and eat late at night. That's Mexican food, right? They also have another restaurant called Nopalito. So Nopalito is their Mexican um, offshoot, which is located kind of like just down the street. They're more like California American cuisine. Got it. Okay. That I was thinking of Nopalito. That's the one I've been, not Nopalito. Been, to Nopa, been to Nopalito though. Yeah. Nopalito was actually one of our vendors at Outside Lands many years ago. Very good food. Very good food. So Tanya, yes. what, what do you do? On the months when you're not working at, or is the outline outside lands food curation a year a year round thing? I do it from January through August every year, um, and then I also I work for a variety of other events, um, and I curate food and beverage lineups and programs, and kind of build out like food and beverage programs for events. So this is my my full time. Um, nothing is at the scale that I do for outside lands though. It's definitely the biggest undertaking with 90, this year we have 97 restaurants. So definitely the largest and the kind of highest level, but I do do the same kind of thing year round. That's awesome. What kind of other events are we talking about? Other music festivals or, you know, whatever, uh, whatever needs food. Yeah, mostly music festivals. Um, so some of them are smaller in the Bay area, um, I work with Mill Valley Music Festival, which is just north of San Francisco. Um, that's a much, much smaller event, but close to my heart. Um, and we also work with local restaurants in Mill Valley, um, but that's a much smaller lineup. It's about 10 restaurants. My wife grew up in Mill Valley, actually. So, Oh, is that right? Yeah. So I've I been a few times and yeah, there's some like surprisingly good food there. There really is. Yeah. So it's a cool thing to work with the, the local community there and anybody that lives in Mill Valley just absolutely loves Mill Valley and loves everything about it. So it's just a great celebration of, you know, everything that um, is kind of flourishing there. Um, and then I'm working for a 
a pizza festival that will actually be announced tomorrow. We're recording today. It's going to be a huge, huge pizza festival in New York City. Um, so I can't tell you too much about it. But if you check out the news tomorrow and search pizza festival, you will find out what it is. Um, so I'm really excited about that. And it's allowed me to really hone in on the pizza world, which has been insane. It's just remarkable what that community is like. They're all so close. They all know each other. They all support each other. They're the oven types I'm learning about. It's it's a whole world. We just had um, our pizza festival in Los Angeles in April for the first, like uh, it's a festival that started in Chicago called pizza city fest. And it started mm -hmm. last year. And uh, the guy, Steve Delinsky, who runs it, he brought it to LA for the first time this year. And it was awesome. It was so cool to have all these different types of pizzas represented, but yeah, logistically it seems tough. Because talk about every vendor needing such unique, you know, specifications for their dough and like the the way that they the types of ovens that they need and and adaptations and stuff like that. And yeah, talk about some of the most particular chefs out there with their doughs and whatnot. That's going to be such a unique challenge. It's definitely been a challenge and a unique challenge at that. Um, I kind of mentioned to you how I've been working with Shuggies, you know, Trash Pie to hone in on their pizza operation. So this is something that I'm familiar with, but typically there are only so many pizzerias at an event. At this event, it's all pizzerias. So they all have those very specific processes. And as you mentioned, they're all very particular about their dough and the temperature that it's kept at and, you know, how their kitchen is set up and the exact model of Baker's Pride oven that they want. So it's... um. It's been really eye-opening and definitely challenging. Um, I'll be out there in New York for a site visit in just a couple of weeks here, and I'm just super excited to to get that in gear. What a su such an exciting job! At least you know it's one of those things when someone has a cool job and everybody is like, "Hey, that's such a cool job." To you, the person who has that job, sometimes you're like. Yeah, it's cool, but it, it it's tough. It's, it's really challenging. Yeah. Like, you, know, you know what I mean? That's yeah. for sure. Part of the job is uh, getting the restaurateurs to trust that you know what you're talking about. <laughs> and for the pizzerias, that's been a huge part of it. We get on the calls with the pizzerias. We've had planning calls with all of them. And one of the first things they're like, all right, how are you going to pull this off? Uh, and they're just completely doubtful that this is something that's possible. And we have to talk them through it and convince them that we have the experience necessary to make it possible. And it's the same thing with outside lands. You know, every time I, I cold call and talk to a restaurant tour for the first time when they have no idea who I am, I have to really speak their lingo and I have to help them to understand that I'm not just going to sign them up and be like, good luck. You know, I'm, I'm going to help them figure out how to do this thing. That is, I'm so, I am so, I'm like jealous of what you do, but also like, uh, I don't think I could ever do it. Like my brain just doesn't <laughs> work like that. You know, like a having to convince somebody that, uh, they could trust me with their product. That sounds stressful, but B then all the logistical things to, too. like, I, I truly kudos, so impressed. And honestly, I can't wait to go check it out. Uh, just in a couple weeks time here, because it sounds like it's going to be an outstanding event. I got to ask you though, what, where do you, where do you like to eat when you're not doing outside land stuff or thinking about the restaurants that should be the next, the next, uh, next time around. And I'm asking for selfish reasons. I'm really asking what reservations should I be trying to get for, for this trip to San Francisco? 
Oh, no problem. That's an easy one for me. Um, I, I'm pretty obsessed with Japanese food. Um, I, I really like all food, but Japanese food is my favorite style. I've been to Japan. Um, I'm going again in November. This will be my 10th time, I think, going to Japan. I just absolutely love it. So <clears throat> as far as Japanese restaurants go in the Bay Area, um, Ipuku uh, is yakitori. Soba Ichi is, you guessed it, soba. Um, Hiraku is like an authentic Japanese izakaya, like the most authentic one that I've seen in the Bay Area. And then Mujiri is kind of like a lunch sushi spot where you can go and get a really quick sushi lunch, but it's like, for the price, it's incredible quality and great variety. And yeah, that's, that's one of my favorite lunch spots for sure. So are you a fan of Japanese food? You know, what's so funny is I, I look, I love all foods. I, I, I really, I can go to town on any of them. Uh, but it's not like it's not one of my favorites, but it's my wife's absolute favorite. So like she's those recommendations will get us through the weekend. No problem, because <laughs> she'll be Perfect. stoked to go check all those Japanese spots out. Um, great to know. Do you ever make it down to L.A.? I do. Actually, my partner and I for our anniversary last year came down to L.A. He asked me what I wanted to do for our anniversary. And I said, I want to go to L.A. and I want to eat at as many restaurants as we can. <laughs> so that's literally what we did. We just went down and for like a whole week, we just ate around and tried out different spots. No way. What were some of the spots you checked out? Uh, OK, um, Otafuku was one of the ones that I, is immediately coming to mind because I'm thinking about Japanese food. I think it's in Gardena. Um you're testing me here because I don't I'm remember all of the names. One of them was something bird. I'm trying to remember Red exactly bird? what it was. I don't think it was Red Bird. What did they do? This is a fun game. I can like figure out the restaurant. So the decor in there, we sat out on the back patio and it was like all like tons of plants and it was really like all, all natural and just absolutely beautiful. You felt like you were in kind of a jungle. I like to make um, Google Maps of all, of all the places I want to eat. I don't know if you do this also. Oh yeah, that's like that's like uh, you know day one food loving mood move. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it might be too tough for me to find it, but no I'll get worry. back to you with we'll, my, we'll just, my LA we'll favorites. And if you have any suggestions, bird, the, you have any suggestions? Jungle, I want to yeah. hear them. <laughs> we'll have lots of suggestions. Lots of, next time. Next time you come down to LA. Let it, let me know and we'll we'll hook you up with all the suggestions. Tanya, any any where can people find you and what's the best way for people to, you know, look up the the festival? Obviously, like everybody can look up outside lands on Google, but uh anywhere mm -hmm. in particular they should be looking. Definitely the mobile app. Our mobile app is super robust. It has all of the full menus with pricing for all of the food vendors. So you can look at, and it, they're actually geotagged too. So you can see where they're actually located in relation to where you are, um, which is a great way to navigate the festival, especially if you've never been there before. Um, so you can, you can even look in advance. It's live right now. So you can go and start planning all the stuff that you want to eat immediately before you even get there. Um, and that's a really great way to make sure you try all the things that you're excited about because you just go right there and make a list. That's awesome. Yeah, I know the app or music festival apps let you do like uh, plan your list of artists you're going to see. But I love that this one is also like got the food option because that's going to be the list right. I'm making. Exactly. Tanya, Same here. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. This was uh, so insightful. I, I think there are still some tickets available for Outside Lands, especially uh, single day tickets. I was just checking earlier this morning. So folks, if you don't have your Outside Lands tickets yet, 
Go get them. They're running out fast, and you're not going to want to miss this. But Tanya, thank you so much for making the time for us. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. I love speaking with people who are as excited about food as I am. Oh my God, I'm so hungry right now. And I, I literally had lunch <laughs> right before this, but I, because I knew I was going to get hungry. But yeah, this just, you know, I think I'm going to need to go have a second lunch now. Yeah, you might. I think I might too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, bon appetit. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the LA Food Podcast. Thanks to our guest, Tanya Kohler, for making the time for us, even though I, I'm guessing she's probably looking down the barrel of some pretty sleepless nights in the coming week ahead. I also want to let you know we'll be back next week with another episode. Father Sol and I will be reviewing Secret Chef David Chang's new show on Hulu. Is it good? Well, I'll keep it a secret for now. If you like what you heard, Please go to wherever you listen to podcasts, leave us a rating, a review, subscribe if you should be so inclined. And if uh, you're looking for me, you can find me on Instagram, TikTok, and threads at the LA Countdown. That's T-H-E-L-A-C-O-U-N-T-D-O-W-N. You can also find us on Instagram at LA Food Pod, L-A-F-O-O-D-P-O-D.